Welcome, fools. I'm David Hansen. Today, I'm joined on the phone by Larry Cunningham. He is the author of The Essays of Warren Buffett, Lessons for Corporate America, also uh, contributed on The AIG Story, a book that Hank Greenberg wrote. And he has a new book coming out this fall by the title of Berkshire Beyond Buffett, The Enduring Value of Values. Larry, thanks for talking to us. It's a pleasure, David. Thank you. Uh, So can you just give us a quick 30-second rundown of kind of what the premise was for Berkshire Beyond Buffett and why you decided to write the book? Yeah, the big uh, question in the last couple of years has been what happens to Berkshire after Buffett's no longer around. And that discussion seemed to intensify a couple of years ago uh, at the annual meeting. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to address that question head on. After all, uh, Warren has uh, sought to create a company that is permanent and that, that, that extends beyond him, and yet even his greatest admirers doubt that it can survive him, uh, survive his departure. So uh, I wanted to address that question and investigate it, and so the book is the results of that investigation, which um, uh, make the case uh, that Berkshire can survive, uh, indeed thrive, uh, without Warren, uh, precisely because he has uh, developed a uh, corporate culture there that uh, transcends any one individual. Right. I should mention, it's due out for release in October. Is that right? Before everyone's going and Googling to try to buy it right now, it's it's not out yet, but it's it's coming coming in a couple months, right? That's right, but they're welcome to pre-order it now. It's, <laughs> it's available on, on all your favorite uh, favorite sites, and pre-ordering is uh, is encouraged. Uh, uh, but it will be in your boxes, you know, in your uh, e-boxes or your, your mailboxes, uh, October 21st. Great. Um, so, so, yeah, I wanted to kind of just get an overview of what the book was and, and then hit on some more some more in-depth questions on the kind of the questions of succession, what happens after Buffett, why is he doing the, the things the way he's doing it. Uh, and the first one I had for you is, what do you think the benefits, but also the disadvantages are of Buffett, of Buffett keeping the succession plan so secretive? Um, we hear a lot about the, uh, the benefits, but what are those? And again, what are some of the disadvantages of this? Yeah, well, I, I take a step back. I think it's a, it's a great question, but I take a step, step back uh, on the question of succession plan at, uh, for Buffett at, at Berkshire. I think it's a little different than the typical succession plan at most companies, which is mostly just about identifying a capable senior manager who can assume executive duties. So you, you see these days uh, much talk at J.P. Morgan, you know, who, who should succeed uh, Jamie Dimon, or a couple decades ago, who, who should succeed uh, Jack Welch at, uh, at GE. At Berkshire, it's not as simple as, well, who, who should become the, the chief executive? You've got to think about that role, the role of the investment officer, the role of the chairman of the board of directors, uh, the role of the controlling shareholder. So it's a much more complicated uh, question. It's not just personality. It's, it's institution and culture. Um, and so, in fact, the easiest parts are who the people will be. The harder part, the harder question is, what's the institutional stability? What is the cultural continuity? And those are the real questions that I elaborate and and answer in in my new book. Um, I also spent a chapter on the people, and uh, just to break break that down, which I think is the easier thing, uh, the chief executive officer role will be split uh, apart from the investment role. And Warren and the board have said that they would like to pick from an existing Berkshire 
uh, executive officer, one of the heads of the, of the subsidiaries. And uh, in the book, I, I, I did a shareholder survey uh, that Motley Fool helped me do, actually, uh, and elicited suggestions um, from shareholders about who, who they would like to see in a top in an executive role at Berkshire after after Warren and and I got a dozen names that were identified uh, scores of times and that's testimony to the deep bench uh, and so um, that's relatively easy there there's a, a, at least a dozen people who could step in and become uh, chief executive officer uh, and uh, on the the second function is the investment officer job, and Berkshire has identified, has hired uh, two people, Ted uh, Wessler and Todd Coombs, mm-hmm. uh, within the past four or five years, who are being groomed to take over that job, and uh, both of them are uh, investing a portion, a small portion, but some part of the of the Berkshire portfolio now, and so there's there's quite a quite a clear level of transparency there, although they might add a third a third person. Um, on the the third job is to is chairman of the board of directors, and and here the, Warren has said that he'd prefer to have a member of the Buffett family, and all people think that he's referring to Howard, right. his eldest son, and you know that job would be to um, sustain the cultural uh, heritage and and assure that that the policies that that have been put into place are are maintained. So so I mean I think that 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 succession plan is actually more clearly spelled out than it than at many uh, companies. Um, the fourth thing is the, the controlling shareholder piece. I mean, Bert Buffett has been the substantial shareholder of Berkshire for since 1965. Right. Owns now about 23 percent of the uh, of the uh, economic power, 34 percent of the voting power. That, that's the real pivot, and uh, the plan for that is, is pretty pretty well detailed. I mean, it's it's not widely understood. I, I detail it fairly extensively in, in chapter 13 of the new book. Uh, whereby his shares, after he passes, will be distributed gradually over a period of up to 10 or 12 years to um, foundations, including those of his children and those of the, the, the Gateses, uh, that will take a very long time to distribute and be sold. So there's not like an automatic moment, oh, sort of a, a cliff, where at one minute you have Warren, the controlling shareholder, and the next minute you don't. Instead, you have executors of his estate who will be carrying out his instructions and very gradually sharing the ownership with the, with the fluid market. So, uh, and that's a really important piece. And then the fifth piece, uh, right? So you got CEO, CIO, chairman of the board, controlling shareholder. The fifth piece, which I think is absolutely the most important, is what is the what is the culture like? How how will this place continue after him? Uh, that's an I think the most important part of the succession plan at Berkshire, and that's really what I spend most of the time on in, in this, this new book, Berkshire Beyond Buffett, because there's a set of values there that that hold the subsidiaries together that turn a diverse group of companies into a single uh, organizational force, and it has a, a, a logic and a coherence that um, will uh, be a force, whether Warren is the... Uh, in, in charge of all those positions, or those positions are shared by by those other people. So, to me, uh, you know, all, the, the succession plan is far more elaborate than is widely appreciated, and that's one reason I wrote this book. And and so, uh, to me, David, I, I think it's it's almost all advantages. I mean, I get to, to, to the approach that they've taken to the plan. I guess the one the caveat that I would make is that 
uh, the disadvantage part of the of your, of your question is that I don't, you know, the company hasn't elaborated the plan in the way that I just just have. Right. Yeah. Warren repeatedly refers to the Berkshire culture and assures people that if they get hit by a truck. Uh, Geico won't miss miss a beat, and that's all true. But I I think what what hadn't been explained, uh, elaborated is is what is it about that culture, and and that's what I try to. That's the main thing I try to do in this book. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like the CEO part of that kind of the operator part of those five parts is something we could look back on in in twenty years after Buffett is potentially gone. He may still be around in twenty years, but if he is gone, it may be something where we look back and say, hey, it really wasn't that big of a deal uh, to replace Warren Buffett in that role, or, or it wasn't as monumental as kind of everyone's building it up to be because they've, they have communicated the, the CIO role, the chairman role, a little bit more uh, than the CEO role. So maybe we're making a little too much of it. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think, I think um, you know, it's, it's enormous shoes. Uh, we want to stress that. And, and as you say, you know, he's totally healthy, so we may have this conversation in 10 or 20 right. years. So, but I, I agree. I, I think that uh, look, I mean, it's it's pe- people in, uh, have intensified this discussion because when um, iconic leaders leave companies, it's very common for the company to radically change. So, it's, it's a fair question, I think, to, to look at. But my my impression is, is I share yours that I I think it might turn out uh, that, that the plan has been so uh, so, so much. <laughs> More careful than, than than is widely known, that it will turn out to be far less important than than we than many people think or fear. Right, and I'm not going to ask you to make any predictions on on who you think is going to be the replacement in the CEO role. But to me, it seems like who those speculative candidates have been over the years has, has it's changed even in the last five years. Now we're hearing names like Matt Rose, Greg Abel. That's kind of what everyone's guessing is. Uh, maybe one of those guys is the person to step in. But if you go back. Uh, five or so years, 10 years, everyone is saying, oh, it's going to be Ajit Jain. That's who it's going to be. What do you think the chances are that the picture looks completely different in another five years, another 10 years? Is it possible that Berkshire makes another big acquisition and someone completely new comes into the fold uh, and changes kind of what that succession plan looks like? Right, right. I think it is as likely uh, as not uh, to change. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, if you look back 20 years, um, the formal plan was that uh, Charlie Munger would succeed Warren as the chief executive officer, and Lou Simpson, who was the investment head at Geico, would succeed him on the investment side. And well, both of those guys grew old waiting, and you know Charlie's still there as vice chairman, but he's not suited to be a successor uh, at 90. And Lou Simpson retired uh, 12 or 15 years ago. So at that stage, the new uh, uh, Commonly identified successors were um, David Sokol, who ran Mid American Energy at the time for 12 years, and Rick Santulli, who founded and then ran NetJets for a long time. They were they were seen as the the heirs apparent, mm-hmm. and um, and there's a bit of a drama there. I, I, I recount a, a, a dramatic encounter between those two uh, fellows when when they were seen uh, seen that way, and uh, they both left, uh, both uh, resigned. Um, uh, from the company in in, in complex uh, controversial circumstances, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, so uh, now the uh, Matt, uh, as you say, and Greg and Ajit is named uh, often. Uh, Frank Maddock at the Marmon Group, and quite quite a few others. Uh, and, and right, that, and right now, 
it might be that if, if, if the truck were hit today, that the perfect person would be Matt or, or Greg. But you're right that in a year from now or two, the circumstances of the of the need, you know, exactly how it happens, exactly when it happens, what's going on at the company, might might warrant a different person, Doris Christopher or uh, Bruce Whitman, for for heaven's sakes, or you know, any one of the the the, the people on the deep bench. So. So I think it's it's absolutely true that uh, you could see you know a different group, different top two or three or four next year, the year after, or in ten, uh, and that's incidentally another advantage uh, to go back to your first question of not naming names as an official matter from the boardroom or from the executive suite is that is that it does change and and it's probably better not to anoint uh, someone, especially at a company like Berkshire where. Um, there, there are scores of operating subsidiaries headed by such capable people with, with you know, heavy decentralization. To, to name one of them ahead of time would it just it wouldn't be productive, and, and and could have some negative effects. I mean, I, I do I think the case of Santuli and Sokol that I describe in the book is an example of that. That uh, it might have been better for Berkshire if neither of them thought uh, or other people didn't think that they were the heirs apparent. Right, and, and you mentioned the scores of operating businesses at Berkshire Hathaway. It's one of the most under-appreciated and undercovered aspects of Berkshire, in my opinion, over the last even five, ten years, has been the shift to a collection of operating businesses rather than just a collection of stocks. And you and I were both at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year, and there were essentially no questions or, or discussions about the stock portfolio. It's kind of just in the background now, and the whole discussion is the collection of businesses. And my question to you is, do you think Buffett has transformed the company in that way to prepare it to live on after him? Or is it because that's the right move regardless? So say he was only 50 years old, do you think he would still have this focus on operating businesses rather than buying equities? I, I think it's a great a great question, and I, I think there's an answer to it in, in, in my book. Uh, and when I asked Warren who I should ask to write the foreword to, to Berkshire Beyond Buffett, he instantly said Tom Murphy. Uh, Tom is the, the legendary e- executive who built up Capital Cities uh, ABC and, mm-hmm. and ran it uh, so successfully for years. It was a position Berkshire owned a, a big piece of and invested in before it was acquired by uh, Walt Disney Company. Um, and I asked Warren, why, why, why Tom? Why, why do you suggest Tom? And he, he said, look, I, Tom is the manager I have tried to emulate myself after. Uh, and I said, wow, it's, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Does he know that? And uh, Warren joked that, no, Tom will probably deny it. But he said, and later following up uh, in, in correspondence for the book, he, he added this statement that I quote right in the beginning, that he said that, that – Everything I know about management, I learned from Tom Murphy, and I only kick myself that I learned it too late. Right. And I, what he's saying is this shift that you describe, in some ways it's, an, it's a natural shift, and, and in some ways it's for, it, it fortuitously prepares the company, I think, for life beyond him. But what he's saying in that quote, that conversation is, you know, in my double-barreled approach to, to uh, investing, uh, I might have done better with more Murphy and less Graham. I mean, um, uh, or at least I could have gotten in there sooner buying these companies. And what Tom's operating principles include, you know, those that you see at Berkshire, decentralization, ex- ex- enormous managerial autonomy, uh, generous uh, 
latitude uh, compensation programs and and it's just uh you know it, it, a very um healthy uh culture and um so i think it just worked out this way fortuitously um but uh it, it, you know it will uh, you know i think serve the the shareholders the continuing uh, participants in Berkshire well over over many years to come so as you were researching your book and talking to the, the various subsidiaries, the various operating businesses under Berkshire's umbrella, was there one that you kind of saw as a crown jewel as, if this was a public company, I would love to own shares of just this operating business. Was there one that stuck, stuck out to you uh, a little bit more than others for having great values, but also just a great business? Well, my wife would say Borsheim's, uh, <laughs> but I, with me, uh, all fifty—I mean, I profile fifty of them in a, a deep dive on every one of them. Each one of them has its own uh, fascination, its own appeal, its own uh, attractiveness. Whether it's a colorful founder or an innovative product or an entrepreneurial approach or a certain way of treating customers, and and so, so I, I couldn't name one because they're they're all uh, wonderful. Uh, and and appealing, and so what I've done in the book, I mean, and this is sort of how I thought about it, was that there are clusters of companies that most exemplify uh, particular uh, traits. So um, one of the traits I explore in the book is is thrift or budget consciousness, and Geico epitomizes that. Their cost cutters extraordinaire, and then they share all of the savings that they generate with their customers. Mm-hmm. Um, I like uh, Mid-American Energy for its its acquisitiveness and the way that it is very savvy at, at investing and, and allocating capital. Um, I like BNSF because it's it, of its sense of permanence and, and, and long time horizons. I mean, it buys equipment that is expected to last for up to 50 years. Um, so, so no, I, I, the, the collection uh, is, is, is the thing, and uh, but I wouldn't... I, I wouldn't turn away any of them. They are all uh, they're all terrific companies. I mean, that said, I mean there there are a few that struggle. There are a few that have thin profit margins. There are some that uh, do have low returns on capital and need mm-hmm. to correct that. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to just I wouldn't I wouldn't I, I prefer the way that it is. I like the big collection, the big gallery of businesses, rather than taking one off at a time. Okay, if there's if there's Berkshire shareholders, and I'm one myself. Anyone listening to us is probably nodding their head saying, okay, this sounds good. This makes me feel good as a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. So I'm going to push back on it a little bit. And if Buffett leaving and stepping down or not being involved in the picture anymore is not necessarily a big risk, what is the one thing that keeps you up at night a little bit? You worry about Berkshire Hathaway going forward. If, As a shareholder, which I'm assuming you are, uh, what are you worried about? Yeah, I am a shareholder of some Class A and some Class B for for a pretty long time, and and uh, under Burke, with, with Buffett around, I've got I've got very little worry. Those are the, you know the extraordinary, um, yeah, you know some 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 uh, uh, un, unprecedented uh, insurance mm-hmm. uh, event, uh, terrorist attack, or some disaster like that that could that could really drain a lot of capital. But uh, but what I worry about really is what I wrote this book about, which is what happens after. And and here the scenario that I uh, worry about, I, and I, I've got a whole section of the book on this, is that afterwards you'll have some activist shareholders who have a very different idea about what should happen at Berkshire. They'll 
uh, help so have ideas about well, let's let's make the dividend policy more generous. Let's let's abandon the old Buffett test of retaining a dollar for uh, of earnings so long as you increase market value by that amount and start being more generous uh, in dividends. Uh, and let's not have a commitment to hold every subsidiary forever, but let's start selling some of those that aren't performing as well. Let, let's let's put a, uh, a minimum return on capital in for everybody, and if you're not making that, we sell the company. Or, or others might advocate for dividing the company into divisions, have an energy company over here and, and spin off the retail businesses, spin off the manufacturing businesses. So you might get uh, people... Uh, Carl Icahn or Nelson Peltz or even even Bill Ackman, for heaven's sake, who say you know it'd be better to break this up or or sell a division, sell a subsidiary, and so on. Uh, and now against that group will be the stalwarts, the old-fashioned uh, devotees of, of the Berkshire traditions, who say that this is a disastrous idea. What the, and and, and I'd, be, I'd be in that group. Uh, that what makes the, one of the most important things that makes Berkshire special. Is, is its commitment to permanence that when Berkshire acquires a subsidiary, it's forever. It's, we don't sell uh, subsidiaries that are struggling, uh, that, that that need some time to to repair uh, and and improve. We we don't do that. And, and uh, if if someone began to do that, it would destroy what's one of the most important special cultural features of the place, which is this long-term time horizon. And if you did that, you know, it'd just be like uh, you know United Technologies or or Danaher, or uh, uh, you know, Level Three, or you know, United Technologies, General Electric, just be another good company, but not not as distinctive, not as special. Wouldn't have this advantage in acquisitions and so on. So um, that's the thing that I worry about, uh, and I explored in the book in a sort of a, a thought experiment about about how that kind of debate might play out, where the power in the shareholder body would reside, and and uh, I entertained some alternative scenarios. And my bottom line is that I, I just don't. I think that I can imagine the agitation, but I don't think it'll succeed. And, and, and uh, uh, but so long as so long as the leadership of the company uh, embraces these, these traditional notions and traditional values, and, and, and are interested in sustaining this culture, then uh, then they'll, they'll be able to do it. But that that that's the thing that I'll that I'll worry about uh, as a shareholder. Right, and you you hear the arguments that. Um... Buff, or that Berkshire could be worth more if we split it apart. It's it's hard to value in, in its current form. So on the structure of Berkshire and how Buffett kind of built that partnership, there was a question at the annual meeting this year that said, hey, why, why has no one else done this? Do you think other companies should try to structure themselves like Berkshire, or is it so unique with someone like Buffett and Munger at the top that it almost shouldn't be replicated because most people wouldn't have the discipline and the values to run it in a in a good way. Well, that's a great question. I'd have two sorts of observations on that. One is it's true. I, the first sentence of the book uh, is Berkshire Hathaway is an accident. Uh, no one planned it out. Warren didn't plan it this way. Charlie didn't plan it this way. There was never any planning. Um, and so, so for a person who who sat down today and said, "Let me start a company. Let let me follow this." This approach, I'm not, I'm not sure that that will work. Uh, I mean, because right away you're not following that approach because you're planning it that way. This was not planned. Uh, this just this just happened. What was true though is is that they had a set of values and a set of principles and a set of sort of cult, uh, cultural appetite that resulted in a collection of companies of the sort that we see. And and so uh, to that extent, uh, you know, sort of emulating. The values, embracing the principles, seeing how they can work, 
uh, could be quite useful. In fact, the last chapter of, of the book, I, I, I draw out some of the lessons, business lessons, um, management lessons, uh, investment lessons, entrepreneurial lessons from these 50 subsidiaries and show how th- these, these values are um, uh, enormously uh, appealing and, and, and profitable. So uh, you don't need to sort of say, I'd like to build a Berkshire to, to learn and gain uh, from the message, from, from, the, from the content. And the second observation I'd make is that, you know, it's not entirely true that there isn't anything else uh, like this. There, there are actually quite a few people who, who have sat down, you know, consciously decided, I'm, I'm going to follow this. Uh, my favorite example I mentioned in, in the book is the Markel Corporation uh, out of Richmond, Virginia, near, nearby the Motley Fool, mm-hmm. uh, where Tom Gaynor, the president and chief investment officer, has been a you – know, he bought for that company Berkshire stock in 1995 and, and – uh, has increased the position significantly, and then that company—it's a third-generation insurance company primarily. But since about that time, it has also acquired about a dozen, maybe a little more, operating companies in a variety of industries: manufacturing, business services, and other other things. Uh, and it looks—it—it's got a lot of uh, similarities uh, to the Berkshire approach, uh, and including the most important. Uh, which is a sense of permanence. That they're, mm-hmm. they're, they have made a commitment to their subsidiaries that they're never going to sell them either. So you know, so I think um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily. I, so I applaud Tom and, and Markel. I, I myself, I don't, I don't think I would, I would do, do that necessarily. But I uh, that sit, sit down and say I'm going to build, I'm going to build something just like that because um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think the personality matters and your own stamp is going to go on your your business and so on but but a lot of the values and a lot of the a lot of the attributes associated with these businesses are are, are appealing intrinsically to me and uh, I think to many people and and the book also shows you know that that they're also profitable so that's the sense of the subtitle the, the value of values so so um so I wouldn't say that anybody should sort of say ah oh, I want to build the next Berkshire but but to to get from these these operating companies, especially, you know, some of the uh, some of the, um, the sense of of entrepreneurship, loyalty, integrity, vision, and so on, uh, it could be enormously uh, valuable for people. I think. Moving from Berkshire, which has had that long history and permanence of the values, to a company that that had a long history of of a strong culture, strong values, but then saw that kind of all wash away in. The late two thousand, late twenty eight or two thousand eight, two thousand seven, et cetera, and that's AIG. And I mentioned it at the top that that you worked on the book, the AIG story, with Hank, Green, Hank Greenberg, the former CEO of of AIG. Um, so in that book, you guys detailed kind of how AIG was turned into this this world class insurance company, and then after um, Mr. Greenberg left, it kind of fell into some. Very bad habits, which led to the bailout, et cetera. Uh, so I just wanted to get your quick thoughts on where AIG is today. And and speaking, we've been talking about leadership, uh, our whole conversation here. Robert Benmoshe uh, came in as the AIG CEO, kind of out of retirement to turn the ship around. It's now been announced that, that he's leaving later this year and going back to, to being retired. What did you think of his time at AIG? I, I think he did exactly what he was um, called upon to do, uh, and he's a, he's a great man. I met him. I interviewed him for the AIG Story book, and uh, um, Hank Greenberg um, helped recruit him back. Um, Tim Geithner asked Hank, you know, who, who should we recruit to, to lead this company through this difficult time, and um, Hank, Hank endorsed uh, 
uh, Bob, and um, I think you know his job was was to stabilize uh, a, a an institution in trouble, and uh, that had been through the bailout ringer, and uh, had those you know the devastating derivative losses that preceded that, uh, and and the, the cultural upheaval that occurred when Hank Greenberg resigned um, under pressure from from investigators over some accounting uh, peculiarities that, mm-hmm. that turned out to be far less than uh, they were made out to be. But, but there was a huge um, upheaval at, at that company. After Hank left, after um, the derivatives exploded, and after the government bailed him out, that Bob was asked to, to try to corral, control, and, and stabilize. And he did that. And... Uh, it's a very different company now. A part of what he did was sell off a lot of different assets, including some very valuable businesses that had been built up over 20 or 30 years uh, across Asia. And um, so I, I think he did uh, the job he was um, was really recruited to do, which was really to make that company a, a stodgier company, a trimmer company. And um, so I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. You know, he leaves it much stronger than he than he than he uh, found it, and uh, you know, he probably deserves the retirement. I think he's going back to Croatia now. Right? How do you how do you think investors and, and shareholders should kind of monitor that that culture and the values at a company like AIG? So at Berkshire, we can have confidence that the, the values have been there for so long; they're going to be there in the future. But with a company like AIG that had kind of a a transformation in values, and they appear to be back on the right track. But how would you personally kind of monitor that going forward? Would would it be listening to management, or would it be through the numbers? Are they writing good insurance? How would you how would you weigh those two things? Yeah, I mean, um, traditionally AIG's culture was under Hank Greenberg uh, and and CV Star before him, back to, to the fifties and sixties was a uh, focused on underwriting profit, that 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 was how they measured everything. You know, at Berkshire, it's 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 float um, as is the principal um, measurement of of uh, operational success in the insurance side. Mm-hmm. Um, at AIG, it was all about underwriting profit, and um, that meant uh, a disciplined assessment of risk and underwriting policies only when you were making money um, and but that that also meant that the company went out and and pitched business and created products and developed new lines of insurance open markets in 130 countries um, and it was a very adventuresome internationalist uh, ambitious bold kind of leadership and and, and, and the culture that pervaded it. It was very easy to see um, in the numbers and how the underwriting profit went, and in the growth and uh, stability. So, uh, you know, with all the upheaval uh, after Hank left, and uh, the London trades blew 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 the place up, and the government came in to uh, you know rescue it in some ways, but basically, um, you know, lended enormous amounts of money. Mm-hmm. That it had to repay by selling businesses. It's a it was a very different place. Those those uh, expansive uh, attitudes and stuff. I think 
have uh, been eclipsed, been been, been cut ba- cut back substantially. So, you know, now you've got a, a stodgy insurance company, and so, you know, I think, um, you know, the new the, the new leadership will have to figure out, you know, do do they want is it the new AIG or the old AIG? Right. And, you know, they really did make a big change. I mean, it's symbolic. You know, they changed the logo. I mean, it really it's a new AIG. So. So you know, I, yeah, I think the insurance analysts and followers and shareholders will be very interested to see: is this, is this going to is this a company that's going to be sort of a stodgier kind of place, um, or or the more expansionary place? And you know, to your question, I think you look at the qualitative and the and the quantitative. You know, you listen to the the notes that management is sounding, what they're what they're telling us, and then then how it shows up uh, in the numbers, both on underwriting profit, size of float, growth and float. Um, you know, and then growth is growth in markets. I mean, are they going to regrow in in the Philippines or Taiwan, East Asia, and uh, you know, uh, you know uh, make China you know, their home again or or not? So, so yeah, that's a, I, that's a very big, uh, it's a dynamic story, and and uh, uh, you know, I'm sort of in, in suspended uh, in suspension on that. I, <laughs> I don't have a right. strong view strong opinion about what direction that company is going to take. I used to own AIG stock. I, I, don't, any, I don't anymore. All right. So if you had to pick one person completely unre- unrelated to, to Berkshire Hathaway today to step into Buffett shoes, who are you going with? David, that, that's a great question. Bob Iger, uh, really? chairman and CEO of Walt Disney. I mean, he embraces the, the Berkshire values almost straight down the line. I mean, the thing about Bob is that he grew up as an executive at ABC Working for Tom Murphy uh, and Steve Burke, and so he's molded in the managerial uh, cloth of Tom Murphy. And as I said, um, Warren says that his role model on the managerial side is Tom. And so, and it's no, you know, so it's no surprise if you look at what Bob has done at, at Walt Disney. He's a great believer in managerial autonomy, in in decentralization, high degree. Uh, of integrity, he's very entrepreneurial, and is an, has been superb uh, at acquisitions. Um, Pixar, uh, Marvel Entertainment, uh, Lucasfilm. So, you know, I'm not. You know, look, Warren has said that they're going to. You know, their succession plan uh, uh, contemplates uh, an executive currently working at one of the Berkshire subsidiaries. But, you know, if I had to go outside, that's where I'd go. Hey, you never know. Buffett's, uh, he's got the elephant gun out. You never know what he could acquire. I mean, <laughs> I guess D- Disney may be a, a little bit, maybe bigger than an elephant, uh, but uh, that may be a blue whale. But, hey, you never know. You, you never know. You know, they, Berkshire owned, well, when, when um, Disney acquired ABC, um, Berkshire continued to own Disney for a while. And, um but Mike, Mike Eisner was the CEO at the time, and he had a very different managerial model. Mm-hmm. And it was not the Berkshire model. And it was very, very hands-on, very, you know, he brought all authority up. And it was a very different culture. And you know, uh, Berkshire sold the stock. And right. Warren never drew that connection explicitly in any of the letters or anything, but that, that's my own, my own sense is that, that even as an investee, it wasn't a Berkshire kind of position. But, but now it definitely, I think, I think Disney... I mean, you know, there was a huge, huge saga over, over Disney at, when Mike was running it, and Roy Disney was very upset, uh, and um, you know, and helped helped engineer the transition to Bob, and uh, but Bob has had a a huge uh, impact on 
on reviving some, some of the great uh, traditional corporate culture at, at Disney. So, you know, now it really is a Berkshire kind of company. And I, I think I'm remembering correctly, uh, Bob Iger's announced his, his intention to retire in, in the near future. Is that right? Yeah, I heard that too. But you know, what's he's sixty three, and he, I saw him, re, met him recently at uh, in New York. I mean, he's fit as a fiddle. I mean, he's just you know perfect uh, physical shape. He looks great. Um, I think he loves his job. He's very good at it. So, but you know that some people would prefer. You know, I, I can imagine him saying, "Okay, I did." I think he's been CEO for ten or so years. So, you know, maybe I've had enough. But um, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him continue. <laughs> Hey, 63, that's, uh, that's nothing to, to Charlie and Warren. They're laughing at that. Yeah, these days, I mean, I just, we're all getting, you know, uh, longevity is increasing, and, um, you know, we're all able to do things much longer than our forefathers were able to do them. All right, very interesting. All right, we'll, uh, we'll finish up with one more Berkshire question because that's how you always got to wrap it up. Uh, I, I mentioned multiple times that we are both at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting this year. What's the one thing that, that you always do when you're at the, at the meeting? Is there, a, is there something that every person should, should do or, or hit while they're there? <laughs> okay. Well, I already made the joke about my wife and Borsheim. Right. Yeah, we always go to Borsheim's on Sunday afternoon to the Berkshire uh, shareholders brunch. It's a scene, and they have discounts on the jewelry, and my wife loves that. Um, I, 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 you know, I always go to the meeting. Um, I, I usually give a lecture somewhere. Uh, I usually have some way to sell books. <laughs> um, I, I think taking in a baseball game is a great. I've very much enjoyed. They've got a Triple A minor league mm-hmm. uh, team there. I think they're called the Omaha Storm Chasers nowadays. They used to be the Kansas, Kansas City. It used to be the Omaha Royals or Omaha Spikes. Um, that's fun. And, um, uh, I like going to the zoo. They've got a world class zoo. With hippopotamus. The terrific uh, giraffes, penguins. It's a very, you know, the, the great zoo. They've got a good art museum. The downtown area is actually kind of neat. Um, take a drive along the river. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's plenty, plenty to do in in, in Omaha. Uh, but the main, you know, the main thing is the meeting. Of course, uh, you don't want to miss that. Uh, and seeing people. I mean, just all, just a lot of the fun is just saying hello to people. You bump into people year after year. Um, you know, you may not see them a lot during the year, but you see them there. You pick up right where you left off. It's it's a great uh, it's a great collegial you know group. It's fun, uh, and I'm pretty sure that'll that'll keep going too. I mean, I, part of my shareholder survey, I asked people, uh, uh, you know, after after Buffett, uh, you'd be likely to attend fewer, more annual meetings or, or the same, and. Um, it ended up uh, about even uh, between those three. So, you know, I think you'll, you may have a smaller turnout, but I think it'll still be a big deal. All right, so i got to hit a baseball game and the, the Omaha hippopotamus next time I'm at the <laughs> annual meeting. <laughs> All right, the, the book is Berkshire Beyond Buffett, The Enduring Value of Values. You can pre-order it on Amazon or anywhere out there on the web. Larry, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Take care.